we're going to go ahead and get into the Word. We'll be in 2 Samuel. We're going to be picking it up in chapter 11. You'll want to mark that. But as we do so, and I will pray in advance of this, um, the life of David is a very significant study of principles worked out in the life of a man who followed hard after God. He had a hard life. He had a very hard life. It's hard to imagine right now that in the context of this teaching being about 50 years of age, that he's got about 20 years left of hard living. We'll look into why that happened, but even just the times in and of themselves were difficult. They were difficult times. They had none of the conveniences that we have this day. And I think that it's important as well to note that because I suppose that even in what would be the conveniences of today, it may make us even more vulnerable in the things that a hardier lifestyle perhaps exempts us from. And that might be temptations and perhaps um, complacency, the things that perhaps leave us more vulnerable to the wiles of the enemy and perhaps less vital to the strengths and purposes of the church. So if you feel a nudging in which the Lord is just rallying you, cheering you on to express a greater vitality, you know, don't fear it. That is what we ought not fear. There are things that we ought not fear, and those are the things that God has inspired within us to do. And one of it is to be about his business. And really one of the most important parts of his business is keeping in the word, in doctrine, communion, fellowship. And then doing the very best that you can in the vocation that you exercise your faith in. So with that, the narration also needs to be made is that the Lord has allowed an unveiling of David's life in what would be a weakness in a moment in which a decision was rendered. And so some people, I think, unfortunately, emphasize the tragedy more than the victory because there is victory. God wants everyone to know that when a man falls, God is the one capable of raising that man, that woman, that child up again. And that's a hopeful message. If it's simply about the treachery of the enemy or the lapse of judgment, the heinous crimes or whatever the offenses may be, and that's all it lends itself to, that's not God. God takes us from where we're at, at our lowest point, and he brings us to the pinnacle of faith. That's true for every man and woman here. It's why in the closing even of last week, one of the anchor scriptures was in Galatians, that when one, as a brother was mentioned, has a falling, we who are spiritual are to restore them. Everybody here has been restored by God through someone. It may have been a pastor, may have been somebody actually that's just akin in the family of God to you. In other words, they showed God's heart for you. 
when perhaps no one else could or did. So we want to keep that in context as we look through principles here. But at the same time, we want to look at the principles that God's teaching so that we're wise. And God has chosen to use David, who as a man after his heart, lacked wisdom or what we would call propriety, and he suffered. So his last 20 years were hard, harder than perhaps what we would see were his first 50 years. But he had a hard life, but he served a great God. And he would be pointed back to his nation as a great king. And he would be the reason as well that the Lord would allow himself to be called the son of David as well as the son of man. Lord, we ask for your blessings that as we consider your word right now, again, that we can be inspired, that we can also take note, Lord, of principles that you give to us, and that is for the purpose of doing the very best that we can in the light of great works that you have done. And committing this to you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So 2 Samuel chapter 11 is going to be our teaching today, but I also want to have some anchor points that are important as well to go to, and uh, I'm going to bring you to that as soon as I find my place. And so I would like you to turn right now to Psalm 119. It's a classic Psalm 119, and you may say, where in Psalm 119? Well, I'm going to start right at the very beginning of it. In verse 1, it says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way. <clears throat> Defilement is one of the peculiarities of living on this earth, of having to deal with the infusion and infection of sin. Blessed or happy are the undefiled and the way. What is the way? Well, Jesus would say that he is the way, the truth, and the life. The way was actually a description of the early church who followed the Lord in very perilous times. Paul was going one way, bringing peril to the church, and then the Lord intercepted him, and he went God's way. And he would not do things the same way ever again, under what we know would be false pretense. Moving forward, it says, who walk in the law of the Lord. Last week, we talked of how the commandments were given to the children of Israel uniquely, but they were universal commands. The reason that it was important to return there is because there was truth in the commands that David would have been familiar with, though perhaps not have been recently read up on or practiced. It's why we encourage the reading and study of God's Word so that along the way we don't take another way. It continues to say, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. 
The testimonies of the Lord relate to those who seek him with a whole heart. Verse 3, they also do no iniquity. One of the things that sin represents is in the expression of iniquity. That means a violation of God's heart. And what it is we're about, how it is we behave. That seems to be a given. They walk in his ways. So when there's a deviation from God's ways, the best thing to do is turn back to his ways. Everybody knows God's way if you have been following God. And all you have to do is make the U-turn, turn his way. It continues to say in this, that as they do no iniquity and they walk in his ways, it says, you have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. So one of the things as well, as I focus on that word diligently, is diligence. That means this stick-to-itiveness, this very precise uh, unfolding of truth that comes in our lives as we attend church, as we join one another in fellowship, as we do what the book of Acts declares, and that was we take communion together, we are students of his doctrine, and we are filled with his spirit. It moves on to say, oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. This is an appeal. Oh, Lord, I know my tendencies. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes, then I would not be ashamed. So when we keep his statutes, the word emphasized here is shame, ashamed. In other words, what comes by our personal uh, foibles, the things that we've done that we could have done differently or better. When I look into all your commandments, I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. This is basically saying, amen to the word of God. Yes, Lord, true are your words to me. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. And this is what we know to be true about sin. It breaks fellowship with God. But I'm so convinced, as Paul would say, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Well, you just said sin does. Sin does. But also, God welcomes us to come back into his fellowship by confession. That's why when we take communion, we literally are saying, Lord, I want to, in this moment, rejoice in you, to enter in spiritually to fellowship with you. I've already taken care of business with regard to my shortcomings, but I'm acknowledging you on your awesome mercy and your grace. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. And he doesn't. Verse 9, this is one of the anchor points. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Heeding the word, James would say, is practicing that word. Not just being a hearer, but a heater. A heater is one who hears and follows through. It gets hot like a heater when we don't heed his word like a doer. So we need to be those who do the word of God. With my whole heart I have sought you. You're seeking the Lord right now. 
And even maybe your heart is heavy, maybe your heart is saddened, maybe you have been afflicted in your heart by great disappointment and tragedy. The Lord sees the intent right now, which is being a seeker of Him, not a friendly seeker, not a seeker-friendly person, meaning you don't want it to your convenience or to your own will and way. You really want to seek the heart of God. That's what's being done here. Oh, let me not wander far from your commandments. Your word, notice this, verse 11, another anchor point. I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God. This can imply scripture memory, but it can also just imply a clear, honest, regular dosage of Bible teaching and prayerful meditation on God. We'll see how that plays in with David today. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. This is an important proclamation that we are those who rejoice in his testimonies. We give thanks. Remember, part of the condition of humanity was outlined in Romans chapter 1 about verse 17 in which they did not give thanks to the Lord and as a result, in a continuance of that, they had depraved minds that they then were given over into all manner of sin and its expression. So it's really important to thank the Lord wherever you're at, whatever you've gone through. The Lord heeds that, and it's addressing to our heart. The Lord uses that in our strength. And I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your way. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. One of the reasons we journal, one of the reasons that we have that quiet time to consider once again what the Lord has said. Another anchor chapter. We've been here before. I taught through it not too long ago. James chapter 1. And David would have echoed this in his predicament much later, but certainly through the Psalms. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. The endurance there means that he's not going to give in to it. Just like a runner enduring the pain of ultimately the exercise in such a rigorous way that he will not give up nor give in until he reaches the finish line. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so James is building a case right now that our love for the Lord and our endurance in temptation is one of the means by which this biblical precept, this truth, has, if you would, a victory in it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he, notice this, is drawn away from his own, when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. 
So that's a principle when there has been a fact in our life in which we're drawn from the Lord, not to the Lord, and it is for the purpose, if you would, in this, to satisfy desire, we know that that was an enticement, and we know that the rendering of that is going to be of consequence. Verse 15, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. This is the principle that Paul taught as well through Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And so that would be an emphasis in moving into 2 Samuel. Do not be deceived. We don't have to be. We can be, but we're not to be deceived. The way that we keep from being deceived is by being full of the disclosures of God's truth. Entering back into chapter 11 to take note of this. And also to have, again, this understanding that people do fall, will fall. We may. And just because ours may not be as public as David's is, it doesn't mean that we are not to have a heart that exercises like we will see God's heart in the next chapter. And that is what? A heart of mercy and grace. If not for the grace of God, where would I be? Where would you be? Receiving from God that which we do not deserve. Being spared in the mercy of God from what we do deserve. There isn't a time in a day in which the grace and mercy of God cannot be acknowledged in the practical. And I will tell you, sometimes you look for miracles, but they're right in the event that you passed through without incident. Right in the event in which the Lord turned his favor towards you when you took a wrong turn and he stopped you or something stopped you. So this is where we're at right now. I want to take note of this. Last week's teaching was titled, Sin Makes No Sense. Quotation marks around the special word, C-E-N-T-S, finances. Makes no sense. Doesn't pay you back in blessings. It pays you back in its own economy. And so there was an intention to make that word relevant. This, though is part two of that message. And this is what I also want to share with you. God works preemptively with regard to sin. How do we know that? Because when Adam and Eve sinned, it means they violated the ordinance of God and his command. Do not take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it happened. And then that led to disobedience from Adam's part, one being deceived, Eve was deceived. We closed on James, don't be deceived, Eve was deceived. Adam, knowing the principles, became disobedient for her sake. There we have the entire world then, as a family, moved into the consequence of sin. 
So one of the things that we see here is that God then preemptively worked. What he did was he gave a command. If it had been followed, things would have been radically different for us. But when sin had conceived and ultimately brought to it death, God worked preemptively there too. What did he do? God made provision for Adam and Eve to be covered from their sin. He cloaked them before they were clothed in his glory. He then clothed them from their humanity. He did that by providing a sacrifice, an animal that was killed, a skin that was given. That was a provision for God to say, I'm with you. Things have changed for you, but I'm with you. In the changing of things, he also instituted a system by which they could come to him with regularity and frequency, sacrificially. We saw that in that first component part, when two sons came into the lives of Adam and Eve, one chose to honor that, that was Abel, one chose to disobey it, that was Cain. And last week we said what happened is God spoke to Cain before what? He did what he did, which was murder his brother Abel. God was working preemptively in Cain's life to say, your disposition is affecting you, and that effect is going to infect humanity. If you change your attitude, things will be better for you. But if not, sin crouches at the door and its desire is for you. Again, the word desire is linked to the very word that James was saying with regard to sin. This is called preemptive. We use it in military terms, meaning we know what the enemy is intending to do. We're going to beat them in advance of them having a severe advantage over us. God knows the wiles of the enemy. So the Lord works preemptively to take advantage of his wiles against what? His people. And so this is actually a provision of God to save his people present tensely. And so actually the United States of America didn't invent this as a military strategy. It was actually a spiritual strategy that God employed. He says, I know what's coming and I want to save you from it. So I'm going to voice directions to you. And if you'll heed, if you'll listen, if you'll apply, you will have victory. If you ignore, if you dissent, if you have an alternative way, the enemy will have the advantage over you. So David right now, remember we anchored that last week and that he was a king who was to read the commands. He was to take note of his responsibilities as a spiritual leader. He wasn't a priest, not in the sense of the priesthood, but he was a spiritual man, and he was to keep note of the commands of God. He was to ruminate on the history of great men that preceded him who handled, if you would, the treachery of enemies that were greatly larger in their lives at that time and akin to what he had gone through. So this chapter takes on a different tone insofar is there was an enemy within David's heart. The heart that followed after God had a heart right now that had been tainted 
by what would be considered and known as lust. So we pick this up and we want to identify it. We're going to go as far as we can with it, but the principles can be spelled out pretty quickly. We'll see how this actually became a violation that affected an entire family, which we're to know, in fact, sin does. It doesn't just affect one of us. It affects all of us. We were here last week. I'm going to repeat it. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Amnon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So take note of verse 1, it happened. Here you go. Sin happens. You've just been informed or reminded. Therefore, you're to be on the alert. Number two, it happened one evening. What does one evening signify? Usually an evening signifies the close of a hard day. It represents problems that are perhaps still on your mind, exhaustion that your body still feels, and what we've come to know contemporarily in our times as, boy, I just need to R and R a little bit. Remember, there's nothing wrong with resting. It's important. In fact, people can do themselves great harm if they never rest. But God would say, if you rest, rest in me. Don't rest for the sake of simply disconnecting with me. Rest with me. Stay linked with me. But evening represents that time that in many ways is an opportunity for God to recharge us. What we tend to do is get recharged by other things that are both social. They can be also in areas that are perhaps recreational. And they can be at times indulgences in which our body is vulnerable in the way that some find themselves. We have a generation right now that's doing a lot of toking. That was a word used in the 70s. And that is now one of the things that we are taking an inventory on is how it's affecting our generation, especially for people that are vocationally in charge of handling things that need wisdom in the moment, not after the fact. So there will be consequences. In fact, studies are also showing right now that the drinking driver was at one time the culprit in many of the accidents. It's now the toking driver who is equally, if not more so, the liability in crashes. It's happening. Vulnerability. Both in the darkness of a closing day, but also, Lord would say, in the darkness of the heart. So not making issue of that, we're just citing right now that these things are setting David up. Where is he? He's at his house. Where should he have been? On the battlefield. The believers to be armored up. Ephesians declares that in chapter 6. We're to be ready. We're to be mindful of the wiles of the devil. And we're to be in our times, again, of rest, really taking the Lord with us, really inviting him to be a part of it. That didn't happen here. Verse 3, again, as he's arising from his bed, he goes out on the roof of his house. It's a hot, sometime between spring and summer. He feels the heat. It is hot in Israel, really hot. He goes out. 
we cited last week. Nothing wrong with that. The problem is what he sees. And in this, it declares, on that evening as he arose from his bed, walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and it says in this, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Nothing wrong with beauty. It's the lust that transacts itself in the acknowledgement of beauty. It can be both for men, it can be both for women, but the sighting here is what happens when it's beyond that. And this is where David's at right now. We don't fully understand it because he was well-wed, seven brides as of this point. He also had others that were noted in culture as concubines. You kind of ask yourself, why, how? Because what the Lord is saying is not a justification of the culture. He's saying this is what is easily able to incite any person men in particular, is beauty and lust. It's something that the enemy uses to distract us and to disarm us and to create this sense that something more will satisfy us. But it never does. Sin never can be satisfied. The carnal mind can never have enough of anything that it's offered. So the principle here is being laid out. It tells us that in this, where David had an opportunity to turn from it, he turned towards it and then conspired to satisfy himself with it. David sent, in verse 3, and inquired about the woman. And so this is probably, by play of words, the first evidence of the National Enquirer making its uh, first publication. This is where he, as the National figurehead of the state of Israel, the nation, he makes an inquiry that wasn't necessary for him to make. He knew pretty much with his vast cabinet, those men who served him, who the people were. And history suggests that he knew whom he was making inquiry of. We can validate that based on knowing some of the men that are mentioned right now and understanding where Bathsheba is in relationship to them. So the inquiry doesn't have necessarily to do with being ignorant. It has to be obviously laid more accurately in the fact of satisfying what he did know. This is what we find out. As he sends and inquires about the woman, someone said, is this not? And that's a point I want to camp in right now, one that I think needs to be taken note by really all of us. Is this not? We need to understand when God has voiced that to us, is this not? It's not, is this yes? Is this maybe? Is this not? And we need to understand when God puts a stop and says, is this not? Not interested in your opinion, Rich. Not interested in your perspective. Not interested in your justification. Is this not? What happens, though, is we begin to say, well, you know, Lord, you know, and the Lord would say, yes, I do know. Is this not? And I think that that's a timely phrase, at least in this rendition. I want to be mindful of the, is this not? I see stop signs all the time that my car, if I am not governing it and I refuse to obey it, it's going to lead to a Oh boy, this is that, which the stop sign was to prevent from happening. 
And so I need to be mindful that in this case as well, is this not, is actually a preemptive word from the Lord, and that is for the purpose of stopping David from living a life that is going to be less than the fruitful experience that he intended for David. The is this not is an important sensitivity that we need to have because God is saying, if you listen to me, this is a preemptive stop for you to not transgress and affect yourself and others and ultimately lead to a life less than the best I have planned for you. So we've, my opinion is, we've all had those arguments with God. Oh, Lord, this is a this not. This is a maybe. Okay, try it out. Give it a whirl. God doesn't work that way. So what I wanted to again say to you is this is God working preemptively to bring David to a point in which he can reconcile his heart with God in the immediacy of saying, Lord, my thoughts are not right. My inquiries are wrong. I know why I'm doing this, and I know right now I'm vulnerable to satisfying it. Forgive me. We are told in a beautiful voicing of doctrine that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so this is important to understand. Nobody has to walk around condemned. Even if you fail, you don't have to walk around condemned. But if there is failure, there may be consequences. But God would say to you, to us, though I work preemptively and it was ignored, I will work redemptively to restore you. You need to understand that there, there's chapter 11, which is hard. Chapter 12 will bring in a shining light into David's predicament. God wants people to know that that's precisely why he came. He came to rescue us from sin. He comes to work preemptively to take advantage of us so that sin doesn't. And so we get that choice. The choice is important. And for whatever reason, and we know it's that God really loves to have us exercise free will, for free will is a mark of true love. If love doesn't have a choice, then it is being forced to do something that never translates into authenticity. As couples, we trust our mates. Doesn't mean our mates cannot be untrusted, but it means that we enter into a covenant relationship in which the binding of the relationship is through trust and free will. That's an awesome thing. Husbands and wives have this awesome responsibility of trusting one another. And the Lord will work on our hearts when we lack trust in our mates. And all of us need to be able to say, as God has entrusted me with a mate, I trust my mate, and I will do so as God has done what? Trusted me in my relationship with him. We have to understand that God has put his trust in us in our relationship with him. So ask yourself, have you ever violated God's trust? And if so, what has he done to you? I'll tell you what he's done. He's forgiven you. 
right? He has. He's forgiven us. He loves us. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? So when we look at these principles right now with David, we're simply looking at precise, precisely episodes, even within our own lives, in which vulnerably we just happened to make the wrong decision, perhaps at the right time. Whose right time? The enemy's right time. But God's right time too. Do you realize it's a right time for God when he works to intercept us? It's a right time when in the cusp of that decision or whatever is grabbing our heart, the Lord just says, taking it away, let go, leave it alone. Hey, David, don't you have a song to write? Don't you have some poetry to pen? Don't you have some prayers to offer? Isn't there a wonderful opportunity in the old city to just take a walk? Not on the wild side, which is where you're at now, but with me, lowly, meek, with me. Take a walk with me, David. So I like this point, and I wanted to make it on that premise right there. Is this not? So today, if we have a, is this not? We need to say, ah, that's God working preemptively to spare me from a decision I'm so close to making because my heart wants to do what God does not will. I like that. Is this not? But at any rate, David continues with the inquiry and he finds out several things. Her name, Bathsheba, he finds out her father's name, Iliam, and he finds out that she's married and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Important details? Yeah, here's why. Uriah is number 37 in the listing of the mighty men of God. He would have been on David's big list of A-team warriors. He would have had a relationship with Uriah. It's very difficult to imagine that out of the hundreds that came to David that ultimately numbered in the 400s, that he would not have been aware of number 37 on the jersey. Period. And so what it tells us is that when sin can ensnare a man, then even those areas which would seem to us be prohibitive and obvious become blurred. And the other thing we talked about last week, remember, was power, prestige, fame, pride, those kinds of things that work against a man. The fact that their culture had already justified the multiplication of women, he had seen it been apart, certainly from a distance of it. So he was just vulnerable and ripe, if you would, to go way too far. He had the evidence, and that's what I'm saying that right now. The evidence supported the fact that what his eyes had seen and what his heart then lusted after was definitely not for him. In the Old Testament, the law for adultery was the punishment of two people involved, and it meant death. There wasn't an exception. So David would have known, had he been previously read up on that, this is that which I am not to do, based on the consequence that God has given. And he probably would have had to preside over incidences much like that. 
Therefore, evidence was in on the inquiry that was made. And the other thing that hasn't been listed here that you need to know is that the father of Eliam, or what we would say is the grandfather of Bathsheba, was his dearest counselor. He was an older man, and he was actually a very wise man. So what we're seeing here that God wants us to see is that sin is a family affair. It affects families, period. It affects families. But that isn't to be to a tragedy. God says, because of that, I'm totally into the families, and I'm into the family of men. And no matter how men will continue to mess up, I'm Messiah. I'm coming in to do the cleanup. Man messes up. God will show himself in chapter 12 as the God who cleans up. We need to have a message that says God cleans up lives. We can't just leave here going, oh man, you gave the testimony of David. and that, I've been there, or I know people have been there. My family's been there. Okay, well, maybe you haven't been, though, in the victory lap. Maybe you haven't been, though, living in the reality of knowing that that isn't the purpose of bringing the story. The purpose of bringing the story is it's the story of fallen humanity. God simply allowing a man that has been one that the nation still boasts in to be one presented not as the perfect David, but as one that God will perfect as David and still choose to use to bring a great work in the lineage of faith as he promised. He's a covenant keeper. So as we look at the principles right now, we simply see evidence that's laid out that says to us, God worked preemptively. Amen for God, so sad for David. It moves in to tell us that David will be without excuse on this, and that's done simply by this. David sent messengers, so he's now involved right now in satisfying by conspiracy to bring others into it. He has authority, so that's what he's using. He's using his, his authority. Took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to his house. All the Lord is establishing right now is the facts that David right now will not be able to excuse himself. Because she had moved through a body purification time, Right now, she was ripe for pregnancy. That's all this is saying. Why is that important to say? Because David won't be able to blame it on anyone. He'll have to basically own up to it. What do the scriptures tell us about this, though? That's going to be a hard one for David to do. He's going to suffer greatly because he knows ultimately that in satisfying his lust, he ultimately broke fellowship with God, and he's going to feel it. He's going to feel it for nine months. But it doesn't simply stop there either. Because what happens as opposed to making quick confession, he continues to develop cover-ups after cover-ups after cover-ups after cover-ups. And this is one of the things you need to see. When lust conceives in the heart of a man, it will endeavor to continue to cover up, cover up. That's why we have such a mess in politics today. Everybody's involved in a cover-up. What? Because they've lied. Against who? God. And ultimately, the people that God has put in place, government, to be one who shepherds the people, for whom his glory. That's what God wants. He wants institutions that are functional, 
a home that's functional, a government that's functional, an education system that's functional, independent lives that are lived out in giftings and in the habitation of the Holy Spirit that's functional. What do we see? Dysfunction. But we're not to be discouraged. We're just to say functionality comes from God and it is to flow through men. So this is only to make us wise. David happens to be the one in which God allows a light to shine in the dark area of his life so that we might be those who as well can say, mm, darkness has been in my life. Dark thoughts have been in my life. Conspiracies have embroiled me at times. I've talked to brothers who collectively with me have gone through situations in which anger has been, you know, and bring, it's been brought up in our lives through situations in which people have been just nasty to us. And so we've run into each other and we've heard our stories and how we handle it or didn't handle it. And so even if maybe this isn't our predicament, God would say murder was rich. Murder was. And had I not preemptively worked through your wife and through other situations, you would have taken matters into your own hands. And by the way, murder God doesn't take lightly either, and therefore he doesn't justify anger. So all of these things, again, are expressions in variety from sin. All of them have consequences. But right now, the building point of this and what God is saying is that in this process, which now is taking root, David has time to pull out of it, but he just does not seem to do it. We always have time to stop before time takes its toll in which there is nothing left but the judgment. The same is true about those today who have heard the word, people listening. There are people that do listen to the teachings. And what they need to know is that whatever the sin may be, there's a penalty that gets paid, and it ultimately is death. Either separation from God or the consequence inevitably of the grave. Separation means you're not going to have real fellowship with the God who died for you and loves you. And ultimately, your determination as to what happens after you die has been made by the decision to be stubborn and delinquent. So the conception takes place. David is notified in verse 5. It declares, And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. What's happening right now? The conspiracy is unfolding. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. Was he interested in all of those things? No, it was cheap talk. It was stuff that David could relate to. He's a warrior king. He probably taught Uriah everything that Uriah knows. But Uriah knows one thing. He trusts in David. And he's serving David with all of his might and all of his heart. What he doesn't know is what David did. And that's very often so the case. We never really know even in the call of duty, even in the call of someone, 
exactly what's transacted. So what do we do when it is that which we don't know? Well, my advice, which I think the Lord has given to me, is trust me. Be wise, rich, trust me. Be tempered, rich, trust me. He wouldn't have suspected anything, never will suspect anything. This is what we see. As he comes to him and as the inquiry is being made, David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. And this was indeed endeavored to bring Uriah into the R&R. Military call that term rest and relaxation. Most warriors learned from my understanding, at least from my brother, and I've talked to be as well, that the danger about rest and relaxation is it takes you out of the mental game of being ready for combat. Many more lives were probably lost by men being pulled from combat to enjoy rest and relaxation as opposed to finishing the battle in your time and then coming back for more. The breaks that were given to warriors to come from battle put them if you would, at a disadvantage because they lost their acuity, their sensitivity. And so David right now is calling Uriah basically to do that. But Uriah right now is built as a warrior and basically he's a picture right now to David. This is preemptive, by the way. This is basically God saying, you're looking at a man who's exercising a discipline that you lacked. Take care of this is what God would be saying. Don't take care of him. Take care of this. You know the story. David's going to take care of him. But he looks at Uriah, and he's actually to see the man that he was to have been as a warrior. It seems that it's always difficult, though, to come to terms, you know, with, oh, my goodness, I have to disclose this. I have to get honest about it. But he's going to eventually have to do that. It's that he's compounding the difficulty right now. What would God have done had confession been made at this time? We don't know except that God will show himself as merciful and gracious towards the end of chapter 11. Therefore, would he be any less to David right now in cleaning up this mess, beginning to clean up the mess. That's always the thing that the enemy works into our minds. God's not going to let you clean up this mess. You might as well clean it up yourself. You might as well put this in order your way, not God's way. And so as confession becomes the last thing that we do, it becomes then the motivation for doing things in a manner that continues to displease God. This is what David's going to end up finding himself doing. He won't go to his house. He's not interested in taking the food to be with his wife. Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants, and he did not go to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Verse 11, Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in open fields. Shall I then go 
to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. A great word there noted. I will not do this thing. Is this not? I will not do this thing. Is this not? I will not do this thing. David would have been given another preemptive clue right now. I will not do this thing. As, as Uriah said, I will not do this thing. David, in this moment, could have said, that is a second or third word from the Lord to me. I will not do this thing. I will stop. And I think that that's a good thing to be able to say as a cue and a clue. I will not do this thing. I'm aware of where I'm at. Got myself in over my head. I'm now drowning. But as I understand the principles of what happens when snare, when this when the snare of sin gets me, it doesn't get better unless I get out of it. And I don't get out of it unless I go to God. And then God has a means and a way in which he can save me. Oh, there will be consequences, no doubt, but not the severity if I continue. And so this, I believe, is another preemptive work as a word from God to David's heart. He's striving with David to keep David in the sweet place, not the bitter place. I will not do this thing. David said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. David could have taken his cue. He doesn't. Now, when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him. Notice this, drunk, it goes to another stage. So drunkenness is one of the things we see here, and it's one of the problems as well that men will do to others or that men will do to themselves. And it indicates here that it seems Uriah imbibe, but it seems to be that not so much as to change his disposition on his conviction. God's not going to let him change his mind based on David's persuasion. And it's really important. I use this illustration with one of my sons who made inquiry. And I shared with them, and I've had as well as sharing before, where alcohol on a Christmas party changed the life of a administrator in the teaching profession in which in a drunken stupor he collided with a car coming in the opposite direction. He lived through it. The other driver didn't. And this man who was an educator and who was an administrator and one who had a child, was incarcerated. Tried to retrieve his name, but I've forgotten it. One night in which something was given to him, way too much for him to handle, and he couldn't handle the vehicle that he was driving. It took a toll. Guess what? It affected the entire family. David right now is affecting an entire family. His family that we will see in the other chapters, a family right now that in this case is identified as Uriah's family and David's counselor. So I want to close here saying I think some of these principles that both we've seen in Psalm 119, really important, the word of God in our life, James telling us what we need to know, and that's regarding what lust does. 
It conceives, it gives birth. Its birth isn't pretty. It's death. That's what it brings. And the fact that in this, though it's a narrative right now, the emphasis was the preemptive work of God to stop us from doing ultimately what will kill us. Today you may know somebody in that particular situation. How would God want you to handle them? First in prayer, but two also in a voicing. That's important, but how will you voice? Well, Galatians tells us, sensitive, compassionate, wanting to save, wanting to restore. So I know this was at length, but it's one of the things that happens when we move expositionally through the word. We teach on point. We receive instructions in precepts, and we say, Lord, how does this apply to my life or what you've brought me through? And even more so, what I want to help in bringing others through, not as one who judges, but one who has been judged rightly by the Spirit, mercifully forgiven, and given, guess what, a new beginning. David will experience that, Uriah not so much. David will be given a new beginning. Bathsheba will be given a new beginning. You know that that ultimate new beginning leads itself to Solomon. And God is showing us that no matter how heinous men can be, maybe we have been, there's opportunity at the cross. So well sung today in worship.